And open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, in your face, Denver, and the rest of the country, in the most Christ-like manner possible. (laughs) Wow, how sweet was that victory? I heard somebody say that was a boring game. (laughs) No, yeah. There is something in every human being that wants to be great. And if we can't personally be great, we can at least be associated with greatness. Hence the twelfth man. Now I understand the twelfth man helped win the game. That first play, they made noise, and Peyton Manning and his boys were, as they say in the Old Testament, in disarray. But you know what? Those of us at home had no impact whatsoever on the game. (laughs) I think there were 750,000 people that came to the parade, but there wasn't that many there. But we want to be associated with greatness. We won. (laughs) All of us. Even though we didn't go to practice. We are something. Our team won, your team lost. And that craving for significance follows us human beings right into the body of Christ. Just like it did the Corinthian Christians. You know, above all, that's the big reason that this book was written. Was because the Corinthians really brought some of their human way of living into the church. Let's read about their team spirit in chapter 1, verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions, no NFC West. There be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together with the same mind, the same judgment. For it's been declared to me concerning you, brethren, that there, by those of Chloe's house, that there are contentions or arguments or, or rivalries among you. Now this I say, now, now this I say that each of you says, I am on Paul's team. I am on Apollos' team. I am on Peter's team. I am on Christ's team. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? We looked at this passage earlier. But basically what they were saying was, this is my team, it is the greatest, and your team isn't that good. And they were saying that among themselves on the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, take a step back and remember, think about how you got saved. Was it through something the world thinks is great or something the world thinks is foolish? Look at verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are outside. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He said, why are you so puffed up with pride? Don't you understand that the world around you goes, you're crazy. You believe in that message? That message of Christ on the cross? God says to them, have you forgotten that salvation is the work of Christ, not you? He died on the cross for you. 
Why are you bragging about your greatness when your whole entrance into the Christian life came by somebody else's work? God was not, already, all, not only providing their salvation, but he was also causing them. He was the reason they came to salvation. And that's what we want to understand today in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren. You see the way that you came to Christ. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. What God wants them to understand today begins right here. God did not save you because of your greatness. See, they were all fighting amongst themselves in the church like the apostles. Do you remember the, 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 the apostles back when they were the disciples of Christ and they're walking down the road and they're having a little argument under their breath and Jesus says, what are you talking about? And they were talking about who's the greatest? Who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom? <laughs> and they're standing next to the Son of God. Okay. That's essentially what Paul, by God's inspiration, is trying to help the Corinthians realize. Do you folks realize it is Jesus who died for you and that you were nothing special when you came to Christ? God says he did not choose the wise. In other words, and, and, and of course what he says here, there, there's an important word, not many, not many wise according to the flesh and so on and so forth. But what we're gonna see as we, as we go on, it's not that God specifically chose stupid people to be saved. He's, he's likening, he, he's comparing the way the world thinks about salvation to the way he thinks about it. And he says, in the world's terms, <clears throat> God did not pick many wise. It has to do with intellect, being smart, intelligence, that kind of thing. Not many mighty, and the, the word uh, could probably be well translated powerful. It's the, it's the Greek word we get our word dynamite from. Um, some people have... Uh, uh, thought about this as being uh, influential. People that are powerful in the world are influential people. And then not many that are noble, um, and I think I might have spelled that wrong, should be L-E, not E-L, noble. And it means literally to be well-born, and, and the Greek, it's actually the word for birth in Greek, and, and the word you, a good put together with it, to be well-born. Um, and, and if we would think about this from a worldly perspective, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, who are the powerful, influential people in our world? Um, well, I guess right now you're seeing a lot more commercials on TV with a lot more Seahawks on them. Right now it's like, hey, what does Russell Wilson say about this? You know, Wow, that must be really something. And I would suppose that in the coaching world, 
In fact, there was talk about this even as the game was going on. They're saying Pete Carroll has a whole different approach to coaching and doesn't take a rocket scientist to think Pete Carroll's going to be on the lecture circuit and the book writing circuit and people are going to be going, you are the man. How do you do this? Especially when they win next year again. Then people are going to go, you, you are the man. Just like they used to say about a guy whose name is on the trophy, Vince Lombardi. Most, a lot of people now, who is the Lombardi? Who is that? Back in the day, he was the man, you know? And, and, and so people, you know, and people with money in our society are influential. There's a guy named Warren Buffett, if you haven't heard of him, who has billions of dollars, and he has a, basically he has an investment company where they buy companies and own them and make money with them. Do you know what his nickname is? Anybody know his nickname? The Oracle of Omaha. You know what the word oracle means? It means the words of God. He's the Oracle of Omaha. In other words, you remember the old commercial, those of you that are old enough, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. When Warren Buffett speaks on the matter of finances and investment, people go, I'm going to do whatever he's doing. He is powerful and influential. Somebody who goes to a, a, a Harvard or a Yale, an Ivy League college, just by virtue of the fact he's a Harvard graduate, he has an MBA from Yale, he's something, you know, in the world. When we think about being well-born, and of course in our country, because we've striven to have a democracy, because government changes over on a regular basis, or we hope that it does, at least the presidency does, we don't have a royal family like Britain does or like, like Holland does or other places like that. So we don't talk about people having blue blood and being born well and all. In recent generations, we've talked about the Kennedys that way. Ooh, it's the Kennedy family or, or you know, whatever family. Maybe in Ferndale, it was the Hovander family. I don't know. Uh, Hovander Park is named after them. But to be well born. And in other words, the world says, who are the people that matter? It's the people that are smart, the people that are influential, the people that are born into a good family. Those are the people that matter. And the world takes pride in those things. And God is saying through the Apostle Paul to these Corinthians, hey folks, would you just take a step back from your arrogance right now and think about this. Were you some kind of spiritual giant that God recruited to strengthen his weak kingdom? Quite the opposite. Remember these verses that we looked at already and we'll come to you know, in, in weeks ahead? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, none of these people... In other words, people who die in their sin will not go to heaven. And these are just examples of the kinds of sin that were present in Corinth because, he says, and such were some of you. What were these people like before they got saved? They were like that. Did God look down from heaven and go, wow, what a great group of people, I want you. Because if he had, they would have a right to come to earth or come to church and go, hey, God chose me because I'm something. But he didn't. Such were some of you, but 
But what was the cure? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, you weren't anything special before you got saved. You are now. Uh, Commentator Charles Hodge put it very well when he said this, man's status in this life neither attracts nor repels God. His choice to salvation is entirely apart from these considerations. So they weren't anything special when they came to faith in Christ. How then did it happen? If 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 they didn't get saved on their own merit, if they weren't special, how did they get saved? God saved them on the basis of their incapability. It's like choosing teams for baseball. You have all the kids line up, and you know, and maybe they don't do it the same way now because it hurts your self-esteem too much. But when I was in in school, line all the kids up, and and here's the two most athletic kids in the PE class. Now we're going to pick tim- teams for baseball. So pick your teams, guys, and go back and forth. And who did they pick? Did they pick moi first? No. I was thankful if I could just be second to last, which I usually was, okay? Um, They pick the the best and the brightest first, and they pick the leftovers last. God says, with him, it's the opposite. He lines everybody up, and he goes, "Who's who's the lowest man on this totem pole? I want him, and I want her. Because it's what God brings, not what we bring, that matters. See, God is not saying here that the majority of Christian people are people of ignorance, weakness, and insignificance. That's not what he's saying. He says, God has chosen the foolish things in the eyes of the world to put to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things in the eyes of the world and those which are not, those which are lowborn, if you will, in the eyes of the world. And, and so, you know, I, I uh, you know, when I, when I think about this truth that it's, it's not just stupid people or weak people or insignificant people who come to Christ. You know, I read an article this week and four of the most significant players and one of, or three of the most significant players and one of the coaches on the Seahawks team are Christians. So we can't look at this and say God only chooses people that are nothing. God saves some people, you know, God saves people across the spectrum of Christianity. But the key here is this phrase, of the world or in the eyes of the world. And so I think this is how it goes. The people that God calls to salvation are so ignorant that they can't figure out a way to save themselves. And I hope you understand that's a tongue-in-cheek statement. In other words, almost every week, I stand here and say, Jesus died for your sins. You're a sinner and can't save yourself. You need to believe in that. And, and you people are so stupid, you can't figure out some other way to get saved. All you could do is say, yeah, I'm going to believe in Jesus. That's where you're supposed to laugh right there, because I'm not trying to insult you. I'm actually trying to compliment you at being so smart that you think there's no other way of salvation but Christ. You see, that's godly wisdom. The world says any other way but Christ. 
If you're, you know, in the, wor- in the eyes of the world, if you would go to the church down the street and say, everybody's going to heaven, we're all just taking different paths, the world says, that's right, you're a smart guy. But when you come here and we say, I'm sorry, but we're limited to what God said. This isn't my idea. And God said, Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The disciples who became the apostles had this kind of ignorance. There was an episode in which many of the disciples went back. In other words, Jesus had crowds of people following him because he would pull into town and if you read the gospels real carefully it says he healed all their diseases and then there were times when he fed you know large crowds of people and and did all kinds of miracles so he had crowds and crowds following him but it came to a point where he said some things that were hard to accept and at that point many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more then jesus said to the twelve Do you also want to go away? Are you going to stumble at this hard saying too? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter said, I'm too stupid to, to, to see any other solution. There is only one solution, and it's you. That's godly wisdom. That's the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world. Um... Secondly, the people God calls to salvation, when he, says, when he says he's called the weak things to be saved, the people that God calls are so weak that they don't have the strength to save themselves. In other words, those people who come to faith in Christ realize, hey, I've tried to do this, I've tried to do that, nothing works. You know, I, I've... I, in fact, one, one of... I guess you're not supposed to have favorite children, but one of the favorite people I baptized was a guy named Lee Carter. And uh, Lee was 70 plus when he got baptized. And he came to the baptism class, and I don't think I knew that he was coming to the baptism class, and here he was. And the first thing we do in baptism class is share our testimonies, and, and then we talk about the gospel, and... and uh, I said, when did you believe that? He said, the way you're talking about just since I've been here. He said, I've been baptized, I think he said four times before in four different churches. And he never fully grasped the gospel until this time. And, and, and there's lots of people who will baptize you and say, hey, we're going to work our way to heaven. We're going to do it this way. We're going to do it that way. But when we really get to the end of ourself, we realize, I can't do it. I've tried, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so in our weakness, we come to the cross, and God says, I'll do it for you. That's the strength of God. He wants to do it for us. For when we were still without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you think you can save yourself, you're not on your way to heaven. You know that, right? If you're here working your way up, trying to clean yourself up, trying to make things work, you're not getting there. Because that's exactly the problem that 
God is addressing in this passage. He says, look, it's the weak things that come to salvation. The ones who are so weak that they say, I can't save myself, I have to have God's salvation. Well, he says, I didn't choose the wise, I didn't choose the weak, and he also didn't choose the significant or the well-born people. The people who God saves are so insignificant that they jump at the chance to be joined to the one who is absolutely significant. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You know, so much of the scripture, we need to just slow down and read it. Just read it slow. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. He has written us into his will. The inheritance of the saints in light, that inheritance is heaven. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son of love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And I get to be called his friend. I get to be a co-inheritor with Christ as great as the Seahawks' victory is, can it possibly come close to being connected with Christ? Can anything in this life be compared to that? Jesus summed up some of this, what we're talking about today, in an interchange he had with some really religious people when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees were so, they thought, so heavenly minded that they didn't want anything to do with any earthly sinners. They don't want, any, I'm, not, I'm not here for any of those people. I'm gonna stay away from those people. And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He was comparing physical illness and the doctor to spiritual illness and him as the spiritual doctor or the savior. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, you, you think you are well, you think you are right with God, but you're not. But because you think you're right with God, you don't, you're not interested in a Savior. But the people who are here, the, Jesus was eating with these folks who everybody despised for the sin that they lived in. He said, these people know they have a need. These people are glad to be connected to me because I am going to save them. Harry Ironside put it this way, God works not with what he finds, but with what he brings. In other words, these, these Corinthians were coming to church all proud and arrogant, not realizing, I didn't do anything to get here. 
God, Christ died on the cross. God called me and helped me to come, and I believed, and because of my belief, God has changed my life. Why could I possibly brag about that? Why can we not contribute to our own salvation? Look at verse 27 here. Verse 27 says, God has chosen the foolish things to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. God wants the whole world, God has saved us to demonstrate his greatness. One of the, one of the uh, let's call it an upper division level truth. You know, when you go to college, you got 101, 201, 301, 401, the levels of the class. This is the truth that's up there in the 301 and 401 level. One of those truths is this. God did not save you for your sake. God saved you so that no flesh should glory in his presence. God saved you, as we will look at in a minute, verse 31, that we would glory in him. Now, the great benefit to God saving you is you get to be saved. <laughs> but one of our problems, especially in American Christianity, is we think, this is about me. And when God doesn't do exactly what I want him to do, we're thinking, what is wrong with you? When the reality that we have failed to understand is from the moment we believed in Christ, all of that was about him and showing his greatness. God wants the whole world, all people of all time, to realize who he is and who they are not. He claims that his choosing of those who the world considers foolish, weak, and of low position, he will use to shame the world. Here's an example of that, of how he's going to shame the world. And this is in the ultimate sense. He spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. When God says here that he wants to shame the wise and the influential and the well-born people of the world, when he says he wants to shame them, there is an ultimate sense in which that's going to happen. And that ultimate sense is when we get to that day that we call the final judgment. Now, those of us who have believed in Christ are not going to be at this judgment. That's part of the wisdom of believing in Christ but this man here found out, he found out that he had been foolish in his lifetime, even though the people in the world said, wow, you're something. 
You're a rich guy. All rich guys are something. He found out he'd been foolish because he came under the judgment of God, as will all people who have never believed in Christ. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead, this is the unsaved, not Christians, the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up its dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And everyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It would appear that God is keeping a track of sin. And until the day you believe in Christ, God has got them all written down. And he says that if you have never believed in Christ, you will be judged, you will be evaluated based on your sin. See, God is not going to be in heaven and have somebody come up and say, hey, why are you sending me to hell? God's going to say, let me show you. And, and you know, if you've, ne if you've never really considered your sin load, you might think about this simple old illustration. If you sinned only three times a day, <clears throat> in a year that would be how many sins? A thousand. And if you're 57 years old like me, that would be 57,000 sins. Let's give, you, uh, let's give you five years off for, for innocence at the beginning of your life and call that 52,000 sins. Maybe you live to be 100. And maybe you sin more than three times in a day and God's got them all written down and it will give him no pleasure but he will say, what about this? And I suppose some people will go, hey, you don't know what I did for the world. I stamped out polio by my great financial contribution and, 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 and I'm a doctor who stamped out plague or, or, or some other disease. I did some great things. Don't you know how great I am? And somebody else will say, don't you know how smart I am? I figured out how to travel to the moon. I figured out something that has changed and made people's lives easier. I'm the guy who invented uh, insulin for diabetics. Put whatever in there that's a great thing in your life. And, and, and people will say, hey, I'm a great man. I'm a rich man. I'm an influential man. Don't you know I was this political office or the king of this country? And, and God will say, what about this? What about this? But the judgment isn't over. Because this is a dual judgment. First of all, God will say, are you a sinner? Yes, you're a sinner. And then he's going to go to another book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And it would appear that God writes down every single person's name who believes in Christ. And perhaps they've even been written down since before time, since Christ died for us before time. And maybe when we get saved, God puts a checkbox by our name. I don't know how he does it. But he's going to say, is your name written there? That's where that old song comes from. Is my name written there on the page bright and fair? 
Is my name written there? Because until you believe in Christ, you are not ready to die. And God says there's going to be a whole lot of people who were wise and powerful and high, high nobility that are going to stand before me at the great white throne and they are not going to succeed. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And then who's going to be wise and who's going to be powerful and who's going to be well-born at that moment? Now there's also a sense in which God shames the wise and the powerful and the well-born now in this life, in every generation. You know who this fellow is? Philip Seymour. It's Philip Seymour Hoffman. I can't remember which, if it's Hoffman, Seymour, Seymour Hoffman. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman died this week with a needle sticking out of, found with a needle sticking out of his arm and heroin packets laying around his feet. 46 years old. Heroin, accidental, as far as we know, accidental heroin overdose. By, you know, I've seen him in movies or, or that type of thing. So this is not my opinion, but those people in the acting world said, one of the great actors of our day. Here's a guy who's wealthy, famous, influential, the father of three. Is he wise? Is he powerful now? Is he well-born now? God in heaven is vindicated by my ignorant, weak, insignificant life as he has been through believers' lives like you and others since Christ died on the cross. Because we might be humble in the world's eyes. We might be insignificant in the world's eyes. But as God says, we shine like the light of the day. When we live in Christ. If I had a picture of... uh, if I had a picture of Norm Robertson, I could put him up there. Norm Robertson is in heaven today. That's Mary Ann's dad and Doris's husband. Doris was here. I think she had to leave. 88 years old, I believe. Married 65 years. He served the Lord in his life. He raised our piano player. She's a godly woman. Who's, who's, who's wise now? Who's powerful now? Which life do you want to live? What legacy do you want to leave? These people here, because they were perhaps young Christians, immature Christians, perhaps because God's word was still being written, They're coming to church going, I'm something, I'm something, I'm something. And God says, you are nothing, nothing, nothing. But I'll make you into something in Christ when you finally figure out that it's about God and not about me. 
So if God saves us to show us his greatness, how are we to interpret the goodness that we do gain from salvation? God is the source of our greatness, and God does bring greatness, and I don't mean greatness in the world's eyes necessarily, but look at verse 30. Of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The believers in Corinth had come to faith in Christ, and as a result, they began to grow, and they came to church, and God did use them. They they were progressing in Christ. There were good things in their life. Their mistake was forgetting that it was God who had accomplished those things in their salvation. They needed to understand that in Christ, we receive blessing. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. We get blessing in Christ. When we accept Christ as our Savior, God says we are united together with Christ in such a way that his death is applied to us Our sinful nature is crucified. It can no longer control us. And now we can walk in a newness of life. And so nobody should be walking in a better life in terms of life quality than the Christian. And when we walk in that new life quality, we should be going, thank God, thank God. Glory should be going to him. In Christ, we also gain true wisdom. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have the ability to to truly understand the world and make choices and live in the world. And one of those great choices is righteousness. Romans 8.1, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the removal of the penalty of sin. And then he says we're also given sanctification in Christ. This word is often translated holiness. 2 Peter says this, Grace and peace be multiplied to you to the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The reason that I have not and I expect I will not die from a heroin overdose is not because of me. It's because of Christ in me, working day by day to make me like himself. I glory in the life that I have, but not that I have built it. I rejoice in the life that I have, but I don't take the credit. I give the credit to God. The ability to conquer sin day by day is a wonderful blessing. And that's what sanctification is. Why would a person want to live in slavery to anger or substance abuse or some other kind of sin? That would be stupid. We can live in the wisdom of Christ. You see, God is contrasting his wisdom with the wisdom of the world. The world says, live this way, but look at the results. God says, humble yourself and follow me, and now look at the results. And then the last blessing that's listed here is that of redemption. 
The word redemption means to buy back. God paid the price for your sin and took control of you and brought you into his family. And this word has reference to many parts of the Christian life, but one of them is the final redemption, which is spoken of here in Ephesians 1. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchase price to the praise of his glory. The final redemption is the day on which God brings us up to heaven, the day of our death or the day of the rapture. And God says that our salvation will be completed, finished, brought to its intended conclusion, which is sinless perfection. That is the ultimate redemption that is ahead for us. Whatever greatness we have, and those who are in Christ have some greatness, is the result of Christ. So why would we glory in ourselves? And that's where we come to verse 31. As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 750,000 people, thereabouts. Maybe it was only 600,000. I listened to the radio and watched some of the TV reports about the parade to honor the uh, to honor the Seahawks. And, and, and make no mistake, while I make fun of some of this, I understand they worked hard. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take that away from them one bit. But after I listened to the radio for a while, uh, I felt like when you when you eat too much pie, got to push away from the pie for a while. It's just like, okay, enough with the love fest. <laughs> I get that. I'm happy they won, and they worked hard, but there's only one man who deserves unending praise, and it isn't the twelfth man. It's Jesus Christ. And so Paul concludes this great passage by saying, Him that glories, let him glory in the Lord. And that's why I titled my sermon, When I Grow Up, I Want to Disappear. I want to lose myself in Christ. As John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist had everybody in the country talking about him and following him. And there came a day when his disciples said, hey, do you know there's... There's people following Jesus and they're not following you. <laughs> and John the Baptist went, guys, this is why I'm here. He must increase and I must decrease. And John died a terrible death. And Jesus said he's the greatest man who ever lived. I must decrease, but he must increase. Heavenly Father, help us. Boy, it is all about us in so many ways, some overt and some hidden. Mm. Help us not to fall into the trap that the Corinthians fell into. Help us to just glory in you in whatever goodness you work through us, whatever, whatever good things you bring in us, however you help us to serve you. Help us to glory in you and in Jesus Christ our Savior. I pray in his name, amen.